this morning. We are actually taking a break, a one-week break from our series in Nehemiah for what I hope is a fresh word regarding God's grace to you this morning, found in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And the title of my message this morning is God's Sanctifying Grace. Well, it was June of 1997. I believe Cindy was about six months pregnant with our very first child. And we thought we would go on one last vacation before our child arrived. We could have, I suppose, gone on a cruise. We thought, why go on a big cruise liner when we could charter our own sailing vessel and go to the Bahamas ourselves. So we did. With 10 of our good friends, we left Miami for the Bahamas. And so began our ill-fated adventure, you could say. We had barely pulled away from the port Miami when I was informed by our hired captain that I personally would be sailing on the 2 to 4 a.m. shift that night while he slept. This wasn't what I had signed up for. It certainly is not what I had paid for when we had hired a captain. But given the fact that our air conditioning was broken, mind you, this is June, and that our sleeping quarters, our stifling sleeping quarters, were about the size of a shoebox, I figured I would not be getting any sleep anyway on this trip. So I did my duty. And I still remember the captain giving me the initial instructions. He said something like this, Corey, it's really simple, okay? Just keep the boat sailing at like 23 and a half degrees, and then we'll be in the Berry Islands in the morning. And then he said this, he says, and this is really cool. If the instruments break, just look at your mast and keep that mast between this star and this constellation, and you should do fine. Now, I was expecting that point for him to be laughing. No, he wasn't laughing. He was going to bed. And there I was. I had never sailed, or actually we did sails down at this time. I had never motored a vessel this size in my life. About 3 a.m. came, and all the lights on the distant horizon, i.e. Miami, had long faded. And then a thunderstorm unleashed its fury. Here I was, all alone, on the deck. You know, my poncho on, 23 and a half degrees, 23 and a half degrees. I felt like, you know, the preface of the TV show Gilligan's Island, you know. (laughs) We were about to shipwreck. And here I was all alone, my pregnant wife, bless my wife, what I put her through, <laughs> down below, oh, I was pretty much convinced we were going to end up in Cuba, <laughs> that I was on an oversized raft about to head to Cuba. Let me just say, it was a long, miserable first night. Why? Because I was asked to do something that I was ill-equipped to do, and I felt powerless. It wasn't that I disliked sailing or that I disliked being on the water. It was that I needed help. I needed serious training. Perhaps 
That's how you feel when it comes to living the Christian life. You feel, you know, there was enough grace to get me on the boat, but there's not enough grace to sail it. So when you hear all the talk about confessing, repenting, being faithful, doing good works, many of the things we've talked about in our series of Nehemiah, in the last couple of chapters, 9 and 10, when you hear all this, you battle. You battle discouragement and even guilt. Whenever you hear a sermon or you read your own Bible, you just beeline to the imperatives, the commands, what I should be doing. And you feel helpless in the light of your own sin, that certain sin that plagues you. Church, if that's you this morning, my prayer is that God would meet you afresh, that you would experience afresh the full effect of God's sanctifying and enabling grace for you to do the very works which he has called you to. And yes, the very works which he has prepared you for. You see, God didn't just put you on the boat. Oh, he has good work for you to do on that boat. Please listen. There are places the Lord has for you to sail to. And he's committed to getting you there. He's committed. How do I know? Because the grace that saves is the grace that sanctifies. And that is the theme for this morning. The grace that saves is the grace that trains us. It's the grace that enables us to do that which he has called us to do and to be the people he has called us to be. You see, the grace of God, it's a package deal, friends. It is an all-inclusive package. And that's what we see in our text this morning. Turning now to Titus chapter 2, starting with verse 11 through 14, we read, Here is the word of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let us pray. Dear Lord and dear Savior, I ask this morning that you would speak, that you would instruct, that you would train us right now through your word and by your grace. May your enabling grace be on full display as I preach and as we listen and as we seek to apply. Why, oh Lord, the result may be, as we read in verse 14, that we, we as a family, we as Palm Vista, we as the people of God, would be those who are zealous, 
zealous for you, and yes, zealous for good works, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in our passage this morning, in the book of Titus, chapter 2, Paul is giving instruction to Titus regarding the church in Crete. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he is giving a string of really instructions, of commands in which to teach the church there in Crete. Commands such as, be sober-minded, be self-controlled, be a model of good work. But then Paul finishes with these timely words. After these imperatives, after these instructions, he finishes and concludes this chapter with verse 11 and following. I am so glad that Paul did not stop at verse 10 after all these commands. And church, neither must we stop there as well. For in these words that we just read, in this text, we've been given the stunning reality of God's sanctifying, of God's enabling grace to do all that he has commanded. And it's all wrapped up in one sentence right here. Verses 11 through 14 form one sentence in the Greek and in the English. It's one powerful promise to us. But it's also a sentence easy to get lost in, isn't it, as well? Just to help us out here, simply put, the subject of this passage is found in the very first verse. Verse 11, for the grace of God. The rest of this sentence simply unpacks this grace of God. In other words, explains how this grace of God functions. So in verses 11 and 12, what do we see? We see that this grace of God brings salvation for all people. We see God's saving grace. That's point one of the message. And then moving on to verse 12, we see this also, this grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That is God's sanctifying grace. Point one, God's saving grace, which leads to point two, God's sanctifying grace. Verses 13 and 14, all these participles and clauses here, they're simply there to explain how God's sanctifying grace becomes a reality in our life and what it looks like for us as believers. So with that said, let us begin with where Paul begins in verse 11, starting with the grace of God. We read the very first word, for the grace of God has appeared. For, for what? Why has the grace of God appeared? So we can do all that Paul has just told Timothy to command the Cretans to do. So that we can walk in the works that God has prepared. That we, as it says in verse 10, can adorn the gospel Jesus Christ. In other words, somehow, mysteriously, that our good works would beautify, illuminate the gospel and his work in our lives. How? Because the grace of God has appeared. That may sound to you as it did to me. It's rather an odd way of saying it. The grace of God has appeared. What is Paul talking about in this text? Well, I think it's clear he's talking about the very same person whose second coming or appearance we are to long for, found in verse 13. 
our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, this grace of God is rooted and linked to a person, and his name is Jesus, our great God and Savior. The grace of God in Jesus are, in fact, inseparable. You cannot know, we cannot speak about the grace of God this morning without talking about Jesus Christ. That's why Paul talks in this passage about grace being grace personified. Grace as a person. Grace who is Jesus Christ. So what is grace? We say, who is grace? Grace is God's unmerited, undeserving favor towards you, towards sinners, found Jesus Christ. Grace is found in the life of Christ, his appearing. Grace is found in the death of Christ as well. It is Christ who appeared on earth to live the perfect life we could not live, who appeared to die and pay the penalty for our sins that we could not bear. He did it in our place. How? By dying on a cross in our place. Verse 14 puts it this way. It is Jesus Christ who, quote, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Why? So that we might be forgiven, that we might be free and counted righteous in Christ. Is that fair? <laughs> no, it's not fair. Look at this straight. Christ appeared on earth, lived a perfect life, and his perfect obedience is now credited to us who believe, is imputed to us as righteousness, as if we have perfectly obeyed, and our sin, our rebellion, has now been placed on Christ, imputed to him, that he would bear the wrath of God for the sins that we have committed. Oh, is it fair? No, it's not. It's scandalous. It's scandalous, my friends. And it's called grace. Grace found and rooted in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know this grace this morning? This grace is found in a person. But here's my concern as we start off. Please hang with me here. I know perhaps in a, even in a congregation this size, there are some who do not know the saving grace. You, have, you do not know, have not entered into a personal relationship with the Savior. You see, if you have not received the salvation spoken about, this saving grace in verse 11, all the talk, all that I'm about to say this morning, about holy living, about doing good works, about obeying. You know what it is? If you've not received verse 11, saving grace, it's a cruel joke. It's ultimately a futile exercise. You can't do it. It would be disingenuous and downright wrong for me to offer you hope this morning apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. The scripture holds out no hope that you can pilot your own boat and make it to shore safely. To think that you can live a godly and even righteous life without Christ will only delude you. It will harden you. And it will eventually destroy you. 
on the high seas. But here's the good news, folks. Christ, oh, he has appeared. Notice it says in your text, he has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. What does he mean, all people? I believe he means all classes of people that Paul has just spoken about in the previous 10 verses. He has come to bring salvation to male and to female, to young and to old, to slave and to free. I think that includes everyone here. What must we do to receive the saving grace which Christ brings? Repent. Repent. Confess and turn from your sin and place your saving trust in faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is your salvation, and he is the only, the only hope, the only basis for change, for growth, and holiness in grace. In sum, the grace of God has come to us in space and time, in flesh and blood. His name is Jesus. Grace isn't just a concept or an idea. Grace is an historical reality. Grace is not just some impersonal force. Grace is a real person. Grace isn't an energizer bar. Grace isn't an oversized can of Red Bull. Grace is not something you're just zapped with. Grace is much deeper. It's much lasting. It's much more permeating. The grace of God is a relationship with his son, and it starts there and nowhere else. Saving grace brings us into this relationship And it's the saving grace that secures our sanctification, our holiness through this relationship. To put it another way, God's saving grace is our sanctifying grace. What do I mean by sanctifying grace? It's that which makes us holy, that conforms us to his image, that we can obey him in all things. And that leads to point two. God's sanctifying grace. This is where we're going to camp most of our time. This is the heart and the crux of the message to us this morning. We read in verse 12 about this grace of God. It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see, this grace is not only a saving grace that pardons us. It's a grace that purifies us as well. How does this grace purify us? By training us. By training us. Point A in your notes. Church, do you want that training? Could you use that training this morning? Oh, I know I could. This word training here communicates not so much of a, a coach training us or even a professor instructing us as if God is some strength coach. Hey, take more reps. Come on, push it out, push it out. That's not what's in play here, nor some distant, airy, erudite professor. No, no, there was words that Paul could have used right here in this text to communicate that. But this phrase, training, it's rather much more intimate and all-encompassing. This word translated training is a term the Greeks use for rearing, discipling, shaping the lives of their very own children. In other words, this training is father to son, father to daughter. This is father to son speak right here. 
It speaks of the influence, the worldview, the way of thinking that we pass down as parents to our children. It's the training that enables us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Just by way of illustration, I can only imagine what it would be like as a father to come home one day from work, ready to enjoy a family meal, only to realize that my children were not at the table. Hey, honey, where are the kids? Oh, well, they're out down the street rummaging through garbage cans, trying to find some stale bread, some rotting meat scraps, whatever else they could consume. Here I had worked all day to provide a meal for my children, and Cindy had worked to prepare a delicious meal for them. And my children are acting like homeless scavengers, jeopardizing their very health, even bringing my, as a parent, reputation into disrepute <laughs> in the whole neighborhood. Friends, we do that every time we sin and indulge the flesh in worldly passions. We forsake God's gracious provision for us and we gorge ourselves on the scraps of this world. In this scenario, I just mentioned, it would be grace as a father for me to remind my children of my work on their behalf, of my provision for them, that I have provided all they need, that they need not scrummage for scraps. It'd also be appropriate to whoop the little behinds as well. Church, this is how the grace of God trains us. Not only does the grace of God discipline us, but the grace of God continually reminds us of his work on the cross for me, that he has provided all that I need as his child. To put it another way, God's grace trains us so we can say no to sin and yes to godliness and good works. We're going to look now at grace's training regiment in these next two subpoints. The grace of God, his sanctifying grace, trains us so B, we can say no to sin and yes to godliness. The reason that we even have the ability, the ability to renounce ungodliness and the worldly passions that war against our heart and soul and to live lives of purity is found right here in the text, verse 14. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it is he, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Or in the NASB, from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, who gave himself for us. Who was the us here? All those who receive salvation. Back to verse 11. And thus are his children, his people, his possession, those who are being trained. We read in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Church, we are not victims of our own sin. We can say no to sin. Not only has Christ rescued us from the penalty of sin, 
Oh, he has rescued us as well from the power, the enslaving power of sin in our lives as well. I think one of the strategies of the flesh and of Satan is for us not to be specific in the area of our sin. Kind of to be happy with general truths without doing the hard work of application. You see, verse 12 tells us that Christ has redeemed us. You see, verse 14, from all lawlessness, from all every disobedience, from every sin. It doesn't mean that we live we live a life of perfection here on this earth or in this lifetime, but it means, church, that we can have repeated victory over sin. The very sin that may have plagued you your entire life. So let me ask, what is that? Let's be specific. In your own mind, can you and God, what is that sin that plagues you, that pesky sin, that constitutional sin, so to speak, that predominant sin? Do you have it in your mind? Men, is it lust? Procrastination? Selfish ambition? Vain conceit? Covetousness? Or lack of self-control? Woman, is it bitterness? Contempt for authority? Or lack of submissiveness? Is it love of ease, unrighteous anger, anxiety? Do you got it? There may be many that you can identify with. I'm asking you to identify one right now. If you don't have one, start with self-control. It's first on the list here in the book of Titus, chapter 2. With that one predominant sin, let's go back and read verse 14 again and fill in the blank in your own mind. Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from, fill in the blank right there, that very sin. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Oh, friends, this sanctifying grace is entered into by faith. And this grace, it's for here and now. Look back at verse 12. This training to live godly lives, is for now. It says in, right here, verse 12, in the present age. Oh my, it's not just future grace. There's present grace too for you right now. To grow in this grace, to be trained by this grace, is to be influenced, shaped, instructed by this truth that Christ has secured our salvation and our sanctification and is purifying us that we can say no to sin by faith. But you say, Corey, I don't feel like this is happening in my life. I see no victory. You don't understand the temptation in this area is so strong. I feel like an addict. I feel like I cannot say no. Here's the question we must face. Are you going to live and build your life on what you feel or on what is real? On what you feel or on what is real as a child of God? What is real? Christ's appearance. Yes, he came 
in flesh and blood. What is real? His death on the cross that sets me free from the press of this world. What is real is that I can say no to temptation. What is real is that I can grow in my mastery and mortification over the flesh. What is real is that I can do what God has called me to do because he has graced me to do it through his sanctifying grace. Have you this morning given up or given in to discouragement, to despair, or even cynicism in your own sin? Or maybe in the sins that you see in others, God can't change them. He can't change me. Cynicism is the air we breathe in our culture. It's cynicism that chokes out faith, that resists God's grace, that hardens our hearts, and if left unaddressed, will destroy us. It's unbelief, friends. Listen to this quote from Paul Miller. Just read this a while back. Just so struck me. It's in his book called A Praying Life. Quote, Since the fall, evil feels omnipresent, making cynicism an easy sell. Because cynicism sees what is really going on, it feels real. It feels authentic. That gives cynicism an elite status, since authenticity is one of the last remaining public virtues in our culture. He then goes on to quote a struggling cynic. Cynicism is taught in our schools. It's embraced by our culture and lifted up as an ideal. It seems insidious to me, she says. Somehow, these dulled, partial truths often feel more real to me than the truths taught by Scripture. It is easier for me to feel skepticism and nothing than to feel deep passion. So cynicism takes root and feels more real to me than truth. Can you relate? When you look at the world around you, that's the world around you. When you look at your own life and your own sins, regarding those sins and those scenarios that you battle with on a daily or on a weekly basis. When you step into the workplace on Monday and you have 200 emails in your inbox and you have a boss breathing down your neck or mom, perhaps it's when it's 5 o'clock in the evening, the house is a mess, the dinner isn't made and the children are swinging from the light fixtures. How about when things are going well? Things are going great and dandy, and the day is done. Do you just let your feelings, just let them party a little bit? Throw self-control out the window in what you watch, in what you drink, in what you do. Are you living by what you feel or by what is real? Do you even know what is real sometimes. My wife and I recently went to see the movie called Inception. 
For those who haven't seen it, it's a mind-bending movie on the likes of The Matrix. Without going into all the detail or ruining the movie for you. It's about a team of people who are hired to plant a thought into the mind of another person. How? By entering that person's dreams. By designing his dreams. By manipulating his dreams. So that what he sees, feels, and hears in his dreams becomes his reality. As if they're his very own thoughts. But there's one problem with this. After repeated dreams, the very dream team themselves become vulnerable. Why? They fail to distinguish between what is a dream and what is real. Between what they feel and what is real. So to avoid the problem, this team carries with them a totem, a little object for the main character, Leonardo DiCaprio. He carries with him a little top. Whenever he's confused between reality and dream, he spins the top. And if it falls to the table, he knows that this is reality. Friends, we don't need that type of totem to tell us what is real. We have the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God which points us back to the cross, our totem, that tells us what is real. That in Christ I have been forgiven. Oh, I may not feel like it, but in Christ I've also been set free from the enslaving power of sin. And when my feelings overpower me and tell me that I can't obey, that I cannot carry out that which God has asked of me, I go back to the cross, to he who appeared in flesh and blood. I go back to what I know to be truth, to what I know to be reality, to the cross where sin and Satan were defeated, where I have been redeemed from every lawless deed, to the cross which has saved me and has secured my sanctification and my good deeds. As a child of God, the cross which tells me what is real, the cross which tells me how I should feel. Church, we must let the truth determine and fuel our feelings rather than letting our feelings determine what is true and real to us. Please hear me. Feelings, oh, they have a place in our walk, not asking to be Stoics, Buddhist, unremoved from any desires or feelings. No, feelings have their place. But make your feelings your ally and not your enemy. In the long, in the long run, you will not be successful in mortifying sin, in killing sin, and living a godly life unless you replace your passion for the world with a greater passion for Christ and his glory. To borrow an analogy from Jerry Bridges, if we are going to cut out sin, we must use both blades of the scissors. A single blade scissor is useless. One blade is the ability to renounce sin 
is the ability to renounce and to say no to sin, to put off sin. The second blade is a desire not to sin, but to live godly lives for the glory of God. To be able to say no to sin will not work if you do not have a desire to fight sin and to please God. It would be like driving a car with brakes, but with no accelerator. Conversely, to want to say no to sin and, not, and yet not be able to do so is useless. It would be like driving a car with an accelerator, but no brakes. It does not work. We must both have the ability to renounce sin and the desire to do so. And that is how the grace of God trains us and sanctifies us. Not only does God's grace train us to say no to sin, but it changes our desire to sin and replaces it with a desire for righteousness, for glory, and for good works. Why? To see in your notes, see that we might be zealous, zealous for good works. We read in verse 14, the second half, about this grace of God. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Literally, the phrase is to mean, means a zealot for good works. That we are to be a zealot. Who is a zealot? A zealot is a person who is consumed, consumed with a passionate pursuit of an object or a person. God has called us to be a people, a church who are zealots for good works. Do you realize, do you see that the covenant language here? We are a people for his own possession. Exodus 19.6, we are his treasured possession who've been called to do good works in his name. God is calling us to be a people zealous for good works, much as we saw last week in Nehemiah 10. And he's given us the purifying, sanctifying, and enabling grace to do just that. This is such an important point, friends, that we can often miss this when speaking about the grace of God. You see, we can too often speak about the grace of God in reference to what we have been saved from, that we've been saved from our sin, saved from Satan, saved from God's wrath. That is all true. But we've also been saved too a life of good works. The Christian life is so much more than hitting the brakes on your car every few feet. So much more than closing your eyes at every immodest billboard. That's called driving on the Palmetto Freeway. And that is not a compelling life. It is not. The Christian life isn't about driving defensively and not wanting to make any mistakes. The Christian life is an offensive life. Walking in the good works God has prepared for you by his grace to walk in. Works that have been secured by his saving grace. I want to look at a well-known passage that most of you would probably be familiar with. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 89. Many of you may know this verse. Many of you probably have memorized this verse. Verse 8, Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. What a great definition of grace. But you know what? 
most of us stop there at verse 9. Maybe you've memorized that. You memorized those two verses, 8 and 9. But there's one more verse. There was a concluding verse here to this wonderful section on God's grace. It's verse 10. It's why we've been saved. For we, his, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You catch that? In other words, we were saved by grace in order to walk in the good works which God has prepared for you and me before the foundation of this world. Works for you to walk in. That he prepared for you to walk in. If you're in Christ this morning, God has prepared good works for you. You have been saved to serve. So are you serving this morning? Are you zealous for good works? I think there are many who are here at Palm Vista walking this, in this morning. It was great to see Adele and Susie greeting with joy, serving. So often love coming in and seeing Michelle. She's sitting at the hospitality table and seeing her faithfulness. As I walk down the hallway behind the auditorium to children's ministry, seeing Katrina joyfully greet me. Walking through, seeing Zeke preparing to lead worship with the other teens as well. Then walking through the double doors there to the classrooms and seeing many, even new folks serving in children's ministry. Orlando and Lorena, their first time serving right now. They represent many others who are serving, and they're doing so zealously for the Savior. Oh, good works goes beyond just the church, but it starts in your family, and it starts right here in your local church. We've been saved to serve. So are you serving this morning? What would your spouse say? What would your children say? What would your hunger leader say? If the prospects of such good works, of such service to God and his people, don't thrill your heart this morning, perhaps you've lost sight and failed to grasp God's sanctifying, enabling grace to do those works, the very works which he has prepared for you. So how do we get that passion? How do we get that zeal? Church, it's about, it's about seeing about living with our eyes wide open. This is what sanctifying grace trains us to do. It doesn't just train us to open our eyes and look back at the cross. It does do that. But it also trains us with eyes wide open to look forward to Christ's return in all his glory, future grace as well. Verse 13 puts it this way. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how do we get that passion and zeal? By seeing with the eyes of our hearts, by continually fixing our eyes on Jesus, the one who died to sin and will return one day to bring us home to glory. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, this world will become empty, pale, and poor. Oh, my friends, do you have eyes to see this morning? To be, cra- to be trained in grace is a taste and to see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34. If you are in Christ, 
Open your eyes to God's saving and sanctifying grace. It's that grace which trains you. And it's that grace which is changing you. I want to leave you, leave you with a quote from John Enzor. It comes from his excellent chapter called Living Under the Influence of Grace in his book called The Great Work of the Gospel. I was thinking about this quote this week. I was up in Gaithersburg, Maryland and observing the fall foliage and the crisp, cool autumn weather. We read this from John Enzor. We find an analogy to the steady force of God's grace in the autumn leaves. What makes them cling so tightly throughout the summer in spite of the storms that blow through and then let go on a still autumn day and fall like colored snowflakes. The answer is that underneath the base of the stem, a new bud is forming, pushing, nudging, eventually unhinging the old leaf. We do not see the evidence of this until six months later when it swells and bursts forth as a new leaf. But it is there nonetheless. In the same way, God has put into our heart a new life principle. It is a love for righteousness. And as it grows, it nudges old habits until they drop. Over many years, we can see this governing principle in the changed life it produces. Or we will not see it. And thus will rightly call into question the reality of our repentance in question whether we really are under the grace of God. Do you see it? God's grace is at work in your life as a believer. And one day, this change process will be complete when Christ returns. It is called glorification. Church, may that be our hope this morning. Seeing Christ and grace perfected. Until then, keep sailing on. Keep sailing on. God's grace is training you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, oh, we need eyes to see. We need faith to believe. Do that work right now as we assess our hearts. May we trust that your saving grace is indeed sanctifying us. It is enabling us to do the very hard things that you right now are asking us to do. Father, I don't know what those hard things are right now, but I believe each person could probably identify right now one hard thing that you through your word or through the circumstances of providence are asking them to do. Oh, Father, we're a simple people. Apply this truth to that one thing this morning that we may obey in faith and that we may experience not only your saving, but your sanctifying grace as we trust in you. 
Amen. Let us stand. Let us sing. Good song.